just wanted to introduce him. Uh, he has actually been here before. Okay, for those of you who don't know him, he came and gave us a talk about uh, Deuteronomy uh, last year before we did it. And uh, he, we were very, very um, encouraged and really edified by his teaching. He's actually a friend of uh, Sui Teng, and he's been uh, a missionary to Malaysia for many years. And really, we've been very touched to have him here. He makes lots of sacrifices. He just came back uh, last night, I think at midnight from Nepal. And uh, he's here with us, and he only just got his luggage. He had food poisoning, you know, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so we're really, really thankful for him to be here with us. And he's also going to be our church camp speaker. Okay, so uh, we really want to thank him for making all these sacrifices to come and to actually share God's word with us. And uh, let's go to God and pray now that he will really be strengthened in God's hand and uh, really be able to uh, encourage us in Christ. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly we want to thank you for how you have not been silent, but you continue to speak to us through your word. And we want to really pray for Paul that uh, you have really kept him passionate for you and for your gospel all these years and that you've brought him here to us and we just want to commit him into your hands that you may give him strength even though he may feel weak, uh, that you may continue to work through the Holy Spirit mightily in his heart to be able to teach us and we pray for ourselves too that uh, we will be receptive to your word and continue to examine it and to be instructed by it and to open our lives before it so that we may always grow in righteousness before you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul? Well, thank you, Andrew, and it's uh, good uh, to be here. It's a privilege to be here again. And uh, thank you for the invitation uh, to be here. I was uh, worried last night that I would be turning up here in a polo shirt and jeans to preach because my luggage was, uh, was uh, for a time it looked like it was not on the plane. But anyway, here I am, hopefully dressed respectively and uh, with my head clear as we uh, turn to judges. If we were to take a poll of uh, who is the most famous judge in the book of Judges, my guess is that top of the poll uh, would be Samson. Uh, probably the best known. Uh, I know some people called Samson, in fact, and, uh, but I don't know anyone called Othniel or Ehud, for example. Uh, people are uh, fairly familiar sometimes with Gideon, uh, a little bit with Jephthah. Uh, there's lots of people called Deborah. But when we get to the beginning of the cycles of these judges, uh, we come across people who are, to be honest, pretty well unknown and especially when we get to this first one, Othniel. The others are well known, I think, because they're flamboyant, because they're unusual, because their stories are full of oddities, uh, full of uh, interesting characters. You know, Samson, of course, uh, if he lived today, would be a, a huge worldwide celebrity. Uh, he would be an advertisement for shampoo on television. Uh, his photo uh, would no doubt be in the pictures of uh, magazines, glossy magazines in our shops and newsagents uh, and so on. And yet, of course, he was the most compromised character morally of all the judges. And there is a sense in which after the first one, there, is, there are elements of oddness, compromise with each of the judges uh, that follows. It's interesting that the, the ones that we know the best are in a sense the most flawed characters. 
I don't know whether that's something about our perverse nature, for example, whether we're attracted to these fallen, compromised sorts of people like Samson, a bit like modern-day celebrity idolatry uh, in our world. But when we get to Othniel, well, we sort of yawn a bit. I mean, he's such a plain person, really. Uh, such a boring account, in a way. We know so little about Othniel. He's a very colourless character. But of all the judges in this book, he actually is the model judge. He is the one for whom we are not told really any flaws in his character. Uh, He's a good guy. He's what judges are meant to be. Last week you looked at the theory of the cycles. So the book of Judges tells us at the beginning the pattern of the book. And last week you saw that cycle of Israel going into idolatry and God's response and their cry and God raising up a judge and so on. What we then find throughout the book are in a sense the specific examples of that, Othniel being the first. And, uh, and he is a, what a judge is meant to be. He matches the theory in a way, uh, but, but he's non-controversial, a colourless character of whom we know uh, almost nothing. Uh, his account is brief and, uh, and it's lacking, of course, in what the media looks for, you know, the flaws in his character, the sort of dodgy things in the back of his life. None of that uh, is told to us. And so he's very little known. Here's my challenge for those who are expecting children or one day will. Uh, think about Othniel as a good name for a boy. Uh, he is in many ways an appropriate hero uh, within the Old Testament. Now whilst we know little of him and whilst his uh, character is not really disclosed to us, he's a colourless uh, sort of person. Uh, he is actually important. And it's probably, in one sense, deliberate as the first judge in the cycle. Uh, because part of the pattern of the book of Judges, as you've probably heard and will see, is not just that it's a cycle that goes round and round and round, but actually it's a cycle that goes round and down and round and down and round and down and down. And by the end of the book of Judges, we've seen a, a, a complete decline in lots of ways of Israelite society. So it's not just going round and round up here, but round and round going down and down. And so we're starting with the best judge, uh, in a sense before Israel fully declines into absolute depravity uh, by the end of the book. Remember that the word judge is not a, a legal character. Uh, in the Western judging system, I don't know, in Singapore, but it might be similar, I guess. You know, judges wear white wigs and black robes and all this sort of stuff. It's not, like, it's not that sort of person. The word judge is maybe best uh, translated as deliverer, in a way. Although they do seem to rule over and probably exercise some jurisdiction over the people after the initial conquest. But the large focus of the book is on each judge as a deliverer from the enemy that suppresses Israel. One reason, I think, why Othniel, uh, about him, we're told so little, is that it actually draws attention to the fact that God is the one who is instrumental in the deliverance that Othniel is the agent of. As the book continues, 
even though it's clear that God is working in each of the cycles of the judges, there's a sense in which the character, the flaws, the oddness of each of the following judges in fact draws a little bit away from God. We'll see that in the second one today, in Ehud. That is, for many verses there's no mention of God at all. Now, in one sense God is working in Ehud, but here in the first judge, the the absence of description about Ehud and his character and the, the bad things and the odd things, in one sense shows us very starkly at the beginning of these cycles that God is supreme. God is the one who raises up. God is the one who brings victory. God is the one who answers the cries uh, and so on. Now, as you would have seen last week, the beginning of each cycle is Israel's idolatry. We see that in verse 7. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What is evil in the sight of the Lord? There are many things that are evil in the sight of the Lord, but in particular, forgetting the Lord, uh, that's not a sort of mental amnesia, uh, but rather a disobedience and rebellion. That's forgetting the Lord. And how they do that is worshipping the Baals and the Asherahs. The Baals are the male gods of the people of Canaan, and the Asherahs are the female uh, gods or goddesses uh, of the people of Canaan. And in particular, the cycle of sin is a cycle of idolatry. That's the key sin, the worst sin uh, that the Bible portrays for us, is the worship of something other than the living God. And that's the sin of Israel here, idolatry. The attraction of idolatry is something that we ought to consider because I think for us uh, living in modern times we think well how did, how did Israel keep doing this I mean why would they commit idolatry like this as though somehow we're better and more remote from such a sin we need to remember that the Canaanites uh, of, like all the ancient peoples had some visual representation of their God for the Baals, uh, it was uh, in large part stone pillars uh, that probably, in, in some respects, often perhaps, uh, resembled a male sexual organ. And the Asherahs were worshipped by wooden pillars, it seems, and probably uh, carved on them uh, female breasts. Because the Canaanite religion was fertility religion. It was all about getting the gods to provide you with children, rain, crops or animals. Fertility. It was a very different religion from Old Testament uh, religion or worship of Yahweh or the living God. But it was attractive. It was attractive and appealing and tempting because it lacked high moral standards. It was a spirituality without morality. And so there were temple prostitutes. You could go to the shrines or temples or high places of the Canaanite worship and engage in sexual activity in order to tempt or seduce the gods to produce children for you or rain or crops or animals. It was an immoral religion and therefore in a sense attractive. It lacked the high ethical demands of Yahweh. There's a sense in which in making an idol, you, you exercise some control. You feel like you're in control. 
that's also, of course, a temptation to sinful people. We like to be in control. And, of course, the other reason it's attractive is that for the Canaanites and all the other peoples of the ancient world, with only very rare exceptions, they were polytheistic, although that's a modern term. That is, they had many gods. So, for them to have their Canaanite Baals and Asherahs, and then for them perhaps to add Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, alongside, was not an issue. Of course, it is an issue for the Israelites. But part of the temptation is it's this sort of freedom and liberty to sort of draw in other gods and add them alongside the worship of Yahweh. We need to keep in mind that idolatry is appealing and attractive for ancient Israel. We need to keep in mind also, of course, that it's not just in this book that Israel fell into idolatry. We see that very starkly earlier in the book of Exodus when they make a golden calf at the very place where they hear God's voice giving them the Ten Commandments and then through Moses the rest of the laws. So the attraction to idolatry was strong even then, even at Mount Sinai. It's all through the book of Judges and it continues on from time to time all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. But the warnings against idolatry remain in the New as well. And whilst it may not be tempting for us to go and get a stone pillar and a wooden pillar and put them up outside our house or apartment or inside our living room, the idols of our own day and age are just as attractive and just as appealing, just as seductive and tempting as the gods or the idols of the Canaanites. We need to keep that in mind, I think, if we're going to enter into this book rather than sit distant from it and say, well, that's just ancient Israel, they kept doing all this, but we're a bit different. Whilst we are different in some ways, the attraction of idolatry remains a threat to us. And this book is here to warn us about such temptations and sins. As always, sin attracts God's wrath, God's anger. God's anger is not something that we should dismiss as so many who pretend to be Christian do, but rather recognise that it's an appropriate response from a God who is personally offended. God himself, in a sense, has redeemed and bought Israel to be his own special people. And the act of idolatry is a shocking thing, an act of disloyalty, an act of high offence. The sort of equivalent, if I can put it like this, would be the committing of adultery by a husband or a wife. We would expect, if that happened, that the other partner, the the husband or wife, would be hugely offended and upset, as of course people are usually when their spouse commits adultery. That's the sort of exclusive closeness of relationship that Yahweh expects, deserves and demands of his people. So when he is angry and full of wrath in response to idolatry, we should not think of God as an ogre, God as a nasty sort of person. It's an appropriate response. There are times when we do, and probably more often should do, should get angry at things that are wrong or sins that are committed in our world or against us as well. God's anger and wrath, you see, is not, he's not a sort of... um, capricious God or fickle God you know he's got out of bed the wrong side so today I'm going to be grumpy and old and angry at everything. That's not the sort of anger of God. God's anger always and only 
is in response to sin and sin always offends him personally. So it's not like, for example, some of us or me or my father who at the top, you know, at a little thing might suddenly get really angry and throw things around the room. God's not quite like that. His anger is always righteously uh, responding to an unrighteous act. And so in verse 8, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And in response, this is how his anger was demonstrated, we might say, he sold them into the hand of King Cushan Rishatim of Aram Naharim. What a great name that is. It's a good thing he's a baddie, otherwise we'd be tempted to name our son after him. It's a bit of a mouthful. Notice, the Lord sold him into his hand. Here is the Lord of Israel, who is actually the Lord of the world. There is a sovereignty of God over all the nations that is clear in this book, as indeed in every book of the Old Testament. He's not a local God of Israel with other gods of other nations. This is Yahweh who is sovereign over all the nations. So humanly they might observe that this king has conquered Israel. But actually underneath that is the hand of God at work. Not always easy to determine in history of course, we understand this event from the word that reveals it to us, not just from the event. That is, the event itself of King Cushan conquering Israel is open to various interpretations. But it's God's revelation in his word that helps us understand the event. That is, the Lord sold Israel into his hand. The Lord is the one who enabled this king to bring victory over his own people Israel. King Cushan's long name uh, firstly means something like a double evil. He's a doubly bad person. And it seems that he comes from uh, Aram Naharim, which is between the rivers, most likely the rivers Tigris and Euphrates up in Mesopotamia. That is, this is suggesting that here is a man who is actually an emperor or king from quite a distance away. Here is a particularly strong nation, in fact, that has now conquered Israel because the Lord God has sold them into his hand. The appropriateness of this, remember, is that they have in effect disowned God by committing idolatry. So God has sold them into the hands, admittedly not of the Canaanites, but of this other pagan emperor. If they have, in a sense, tried to divorce from God, God has handed them over, sold them over into the hands of this other uh, king. That's part of the punishment, uh, of course, for their sin. Uh, God rarely leaves us uh, comfortable in our our sin or idolatry and uh, God, of course, is not going to allow them to continue committing idolatry uh, with impunity, that is, without punishment. Also, this punishment is not unexpected. That's important to grasp. Exactly what is happening here is what was warned about, for example, in Deuteronomy 28 or the end of Leviticus. That is, in the curses of the covenant that Israel enters into at Mount Sinai come threats of various things, including enemy defeat. So Israel ought to have been able to interpret this event even without this paragraph that being sold or defeated 
by King Kushan is in fact a curse of the covenant that exposes their sin as its cause. Of course, sin blinds and mostly Israel through their history was always blind to these events happening in their midst and did not know, in fact, God's word well enough. As I say, God is demanding of exclusive loyalty and he doesn't tolerate any rivals and that's why he's handed them over. But when the Israelites cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the Israelites who delivered them. Israel cries to the Lord. There is no mention here of repentance. Most likely, this is a cry of distress, not a cry of repentance. This is Israel merely bewailing the fact that they are under servitude of a foreign king. It lasts for eight years. They serve this king for eight years. In fact, they should have been serving Yahweh, as earlier parts of the Old Testament make clear. We're not sure if they cried for eight years or it took eight years before they cried. But at the end of eight years of serving, God answers the cry. But my point is that there is no indication that this is a cry of repentance. They are not necessarily turning away from their idolatry. Now that's a slight argument from silence and the language used of Israel crying is slightly different in other parts of this book. But here most people would regard that there is no repentance. It is merely a cry of distress. A cry of bewailing their condition uh, of being defeated and serving a foreign king. So God answers them not because their repentance draws him to forgive them. He answers them purely out of mercy and compassion and pity for their plight. We could say that it's also God keeping his promises to Abraham. That is, of course, he's not going to abandon them forever. Their cry leads to the raising up of Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, mentioned briefly uh, earlier in chapter 1 as well. But no other details are given. And uh, he delivers or he saves Israel, we're told. We're told that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. We have to be careful, I think, of this. I mean, certainly, of course, God's Spirit, uh, the same as the Holy Spirit as called in the New Testament. But the impact or effect of the coming of the Spirit of God, it seems, isn't necessarily the fullness of what you see in the New Testament. That is, we should be careful not to assume that this is a person in whom are the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, etc. It seems, in fact, in this book of Judges, of course, God's Spirit comes later on Samson, for example, and yet he remains an immoral character. The key impact of the coming of the Spirit of God on a person, it seems to be power for victory. In a sense, in the Acts of the Apostles, the key impact of the Spirit of God then on Peter or Paul, for example, is power to preach the word. So here the, the sense of power is probably the key thing or the key part of the impact of the uh, bringing of this, of this coming of the Spirit of the Lord upon him. He delivers or judges Israel in verse 10. He went out to war and the Lord 
gave King Rushatime of Aram into his hand. Again, notice the sovereignty of God. That is, this starkness, this conciseness of description of Othniel means that it's very clear that God is the one who's brought the victory. God sold them into King Kushan. God raised up Othniel. God gave his spirit to Othniel. God brought the victory over King Kushan and, and in a sense delivered him into the hands of Othniel and his hand, uh, that is Ehud's hand probably, prevailed over Kushan time at the end of verse 10. God is the one who is sovereign in all of this. God is the real deliverer, of course. Ehud is a human agent and we're told so little about him because it then, in a sense, highlights the role of God in all of this. As a result, the land has rest for 40 years and then Othniel, son of Kenaz, dies. The implication of that is that after this victory, Othniel still judges or rules over Israel to a degree, uh, not like a king really, uh, there's no bit like Joshua maybe, uh, and it seems that his ruling over has, uh, is over a time of rest, that is rest from enemies. It may not be a time of great morality, it doesn't necessarily mean that they've turned away from idolatry completely, but there is a positive sense about this rest for 40 years in the time of Othniel's life. The philosopher Hegel said that the only thing that we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. And in some ways that's true uh, because of our perverse nature and in some ways that's a, a good summary of part of the book of Judges. Because what happens, of course, a generation later, 40 years later, the same thing happens all again. I remember when I was in uh, the Boy Scouts a long time ago, last century. Um, so it was a long time ago. And uh, we, we had this song that we would sing around a campfire. Next verse, same as the first, a little bit louder and a little bit worse. That's also a description of the book of Judges. Uh, next judge, same as the first, a little bit well, I don't know about louder, but certainly a bit worse. So we move from Othniel, about whom we know little, but yet seems to be a good guy. And now we move to Ehud, who's not necessarily a bad guy, but there are certainly ethical and moral issues that are raised by his story. There's an element of, of some discomfort about him to a degree. I've been thinking about to the extent, what extent should Ehud be a hero of mine because he's left-handed, as am I. And so I'm sort of quite attracted to the fact that he's a left-hander and yet uh, there's his deception and other things that are sort of a little bit compromised. We'll think about that as we go through his story. The Israelites, you see in verse 12, again did what was evil. That should not surprise us given what I've earlier said about idolatry. And that's the implication of verse 12. It doesn't tell us tell us here that they worship the Baals and the Asherahs, but doing evil in the sight of the Lord, that is idolatry, is what they're committing. And so, again, the Lord is sovereign. He strengthens King Eglon of Moab. Moab is a close neighbour, immediately over the Jordan River. It's actually in the plains of Moab that Moses gave his final sermon of Deuteronomy before, under Joshua, they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. 
So rather than a, a, a ruler from afar like King Kushan, uh, King Eglon is close by, uh, just over in the southern sort of part of what is modern day Jordan, I guess. And, uh, and the Lord strengthened the king of Moab. The, the king of Moab may not know that, of course. The king of Moab may not be thinking, wow, the God of Israel has been strengthening me to defeat Israel. He probably wouldn't have attributed that to him at all. Uh, but that's what's really happening. Uh, and it's because they'd done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The fact that it's repeated in effect in verse 12 at the beginning and the end uh, is, is making it very clear to us, the reader, and emphasising the point, they did what was evil. This is not sort of human history of God sort of, oh, let's make him strong now and now let's make him strong. It's God reacting very directly to the sins and the behaviour in general of his own people. Well, this cycle of Ehud is much more colourful uh, and controversial, uh, as I say, than Othniel. In response to Israel's sin, uh, King Eglon, is, it seems, has made incursions into the land. It may not be a full defeat of Israel. It's hard to be sure on this. Certainly, he, uh, we're told uh, he defeats Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. This is in an alliance with the Ammonites and Amalekites. Now, the Ammonites were close brothers of Moab. Ammon and Moab, in fact, were the names of the sons of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. So, their nations are small and right close to each other in, uh, just across the Jordan River. The Amalekites are arch enemies of Israel. They fought against them in Exodus 17 before they got to Sinai, Israel 1. They fought again in numbers and Israel lost. And they are, in a sense, condemned uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, never to be welcomed into Israel. And here they are, fighting and winning in an alliance with the Ammonites and Moabites, who, though they were distantly related to Israel, are largely enemies through history. They took possession of the city of Palms, which no doubt is Jericho. Probably that's significant because, of course, it was the first city conquered by Israel when they crossed the Jordan River. And it is a, a palm oasis today, still called in some terminology the City of Palms, in the midst of a fairly dry desert by the little stream of the Jordan River. And so the Israelites served King Eglon of Moab for 18 years. And again they cry out. The cycle continues. Idolatry God raising up a, an enemy to defeat them. They, cry, they serve for so many years and now they cry out. Again, there's no mention of repentance here. And in response, out of pity and compassion, not because of repentance, I think, uh, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. It's the last mention of the Lord for many verses. He's a left-hander and Benjamin, the name Benjamin, is son of the right hand. So it's probably a little play on words. He's a lefty from the rights, so to speak. Of course, we are rarely told information about biblical characters. For most of them, we, we have little idea what they look like. But when we are told, it's always for a purpose, as will become clear in a minute. But probably it, it is a slight play on, on words. The left-handedness uh, of it, uh, it it's, it's in the sense of he's unable to use his right hand, which some have suggested means that he may well be 
um, disabled in some way. That's not, I think, all that likely in a sense, given what he does later, but, but it could be uh, possible. But certainly it, it seems he is left-handed. And uh, the Israelites sent tribute by him to King Eglon. Now, now, don't misunderstand what tribute is. Tribute isn't sort of saying wonderful things about the king. Oh, king, we love you, we think you're wonderful. Tribute is basically money. Tribute is money to buy off the king. It happened in the ancient world all the time. So an enemy, a strong enemy, is threatening to defeat you. Pay them heaps of money. Raid the the temple treasury, as happened later on in history. If you pay them enough money, they might not defeat you. You, of course, are becoming subservient to them. That's what's going on here. Ehud is going to pay money so that Moab doesn't sort of continue its invasion into the land, most likely. It seems that they've really just taken a little piece of the land around Jericho and uh, the Jordan River next to Moab. So Ehud uh, made for himself, we're told, a sword with two edges. Don't think uh, allegorically, this is the word of God, the two-edged sword. That's a, a shocking way of understanding it. I'm sure King Eglon would have wished it was just the word of God rather than a real piece of metal. Uh, if it was the word of God, of course, it may not have damaged his sort of insides quite as much. Who knows? It's a real sword, that's all. It probably doesn't have a cross piece. It's probably just a, a long pointy sword. But the point of it is that he fastened it to the, on the right thigh under his clothes. Uh, that is on this side. Now, if you're right-handed and you've got clothes over here, it's not so easy to get this out. You reach across is the idea. Just like you and I, if we shake hands, we shake hands with the right hand. The idea in ancient times was that in shaking hands, you are showing, I don't carry a sword. I'm a friend. Now, of course, for we left-handers, it's pretty good. I can shake hands with my right and I can stab you with my left. Now, that's what's going on here. Ehud, in a sense, is hiding the sword where it wouldn't be expected. That is, when he comes to the king... Maybe they might see, is there a sword sort of shape under his left thigh or under his clothes on his left, but they probably wouldn't look on the right, is perhaps the idea behind this. It's a bit of deceit, of course. Ehud is a particularly cunning and devious fellow. That sort of raises some questions for us about him as a hero from God. We're also then told that King Eglon is very fat, now, I, I think this is, this is a bit like a comic or a cartoon. Uh, deliberately, I think this is a funny story and it is poking fun at King Eglon. So, think of somebody who is very fat. So, a bit later when he stands up, think of somebody who's sort of you know, getting up like this because it's a real effort to sort of lift all your kilograms of, of fat and flabber uh, to when he stands up a bit later on. So, it's picking fun on him. It's making fun of this very fat man. Ehud finished presenting the tribute in verse 18. It all looks quite normal so far. Uh, He sent the people who carried the tribute on their way. That's his fellow Israelites. You can go back now. He himself uh, left, it seems, and uh, presumably this is in Jericho, in the city of Palms. And he turned back as far as the sculptured stones near Gilgal. Now, in the translation we had on the screen, it's idols. And probably that's what the sculptured stones are, although it's slightly uh, ambiguous in a way. 
Gilgal was a place where after they conquered Israel, and, or crossed the Jordan I should say, in Joshua 4, they build this little pile of stones to commemorate the crossing. But the word that's used here most likely refers to idols. That is, it's sculptured. It's not just a pile of stones. And the implication is of the decline of Israel from marking God giving them the land to now a place of idolatry, of sculptured stones or idols. No comment really is made about them here. It's just that when Ehud gets to that place, he turns back. And he sends a message or he takes a message and he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. The word message is actually broader than that. So we could really translate it, maybe better translate it as, I have a secret thing for you, O king. Now here is a very fat king. He's being paid tribute. You can understand these sort of very fat characters who sort of feed on the, the poor and the conquered around them. The king says silence. He sends all his attendants out. He's a foolish king as well, of course. But he's greedy. That's the implication. I've got a secret thing for you, king. Oh, good. Let's get rid of my attendants so I don't have to give them a cut. I don't have to give them part of what you're about to give me. So foolish, greedy king is the way he's being portrayed here. And all his attendants leave. And Ehud came to him. And while he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber... He said, I have a thing from God for you. This draws his attention perhaps even more from God. So he rose from his seat. Picture this really, really big fat man rising from his seat, not very agile, no attendants, no bodyguards left in the room. We know what's going to happen, which actually means the story is is actually a bit more fun for us. It's not tense because we know what's about to happen because we know the sword is hidden. And he who had reached with his left hand took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. The hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the sword out of his belly and the dirt came out. Now this is a little bit you know, not so nice for a Sunday morning, uh, let me say. Uh, this sword has been covered by all the fat and flabber. The man is dead from it. And when it says the dirt came out, I think uh, it, it, in the translation on the screen, it's, it's the, the, the sword comes out the back of him. Most likely, the language is that, he, that, in effect, his bowels opened, is what it means by the dirt came out. That is, in killing him, his body just sort of, exploded or something like that you know all the bowels emptied pretty awful but it's comic we're laughing at this silly king even though he's one that's been strengthened by God now it's quite an odd thing in a way to think about God who raises up an an enemy but the enemy in fact is is not a particularly good character God's doing that all the time in the Old Testament something that Habakkuk objected to and yet God God is free to use pagans to defeat his people, odd pagans, and he's free to use odd Israelites to save his people. The freedom of God in all of this is an important thing. So then, uh, the king is dead, Ehud locks the door and, uh, and escapes. The servants came, you can imagine they might smell something if the bowels had been emptied, 
And when they saw that the doors were locked, they thought, well, he must be relieving himself in the cool chamber. They didn't have sort of bathrooms like we do uh, in those days. And so they waited until they were embarrassed. Again, we're meant to be laughing at this, at this sort of, this is, this is sort of TV children's comedy, toilet humour in a way. In fact, the way it's written in Hebrews expresses more surprise. You know, when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, behold, oh, he must be relieving himself. That is this element of, oh, surprise. Three times, actually, in these verses. A bit lost in our sort of plain English translations, I might say. When they did, when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, eventually, we don't know how long this took. You know, how, how long would you wait? Well, you can work that out. They took the key and opened them. And there was their lord or king or master lying dead on the floor. You can imagine the, the smell. That's why they thought he was at the toilet for so long. Ehud escapes uh, while they delayed. So he's got away quite cleanly and quickly. And he passed beyond the sculpted stones and escaped to Syrah. And then he sounds the trumpet and he gathers then all the people from Ephraim. And, uh, and the Israelites went down with him, with him uh, at the head. He brings victory over the whole of Moab. None of them escape. Ehud escapes from them. None of them escape from him. Beginning and end of that paragraph in effect. Verse 26 to uh, verse 29. Notice that they kill about 10,000 of them in verse 29. And whilst we've got the words strong and able-bodied, I can't remember what the translation on the screen had, strong and able-bodied, the idea is of stout. It's as though they are all fat as well. Although it's not quite the very fat word. And that day, uh, and, and no one escaped. So they cut off the river and they kill a lot of them. The enemy is defeated. Notice in verse 28, the Lord gets mentioned again. The Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Ehud is the leader, but the victor is Yahweh. And as I say, it's the first time the word the Lord has occurred for, since verse 15. All of that sort of makes the events that have happened, the deception, the killing of the king, is it ethically okay? I mean, this is a, I mean it's, it's not wrong, I think, to be a left-hander. And, um, but, but yet, the way he acts, it's sort of slightly uncomfortable. Now, our degree of discomfort may vary uh, from person to person. We need to remember here that the killing of the king is part of the liberation of the people. And so to kill the king, even the way he did it, even deceptively, is, is not necessarily, I think, a moral compromise, given that God has raised him up and that the enemy who's taken the land, uh, promised land that is, uh, is to be killed and exterminated out of the land. That's part of the Bible's law, in effect, about the people who are in the land who are foreigners. Is it deceptive? Is it okay? Is it condoned to sort of mislead the king? I don't, think, I don't see why not, particularly. But some people raise that as sort of uh, part of the ethical issues. But certainly, certainly this is a more colourful character and it begins to raise some of the ethical issues that, in a sense, get raised more and more in the cycles that follow. I don't think Ehud is necessarily a bad person, not a flawed or compromised person particularly, but it's certainly a little bit more controversial and that element of controversy will increase in the judges that follow in this cycle as Israel declines.
Well, then at the end of this passage, there's a one verse mention of another one, Shamgar. It's almost like an afterthought, sort of squeezed in before we get to Deborah. Oh, after him came Shamgar, son of Anath. Some say that the name Shamgar is not even an Israelite, that this man is probably a pagan. Well, we can't be certain about that. It's not told explicitly. He killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. There's a lump of wood that you use to hit the side of an ox to get the ox to go in the right direction. I mean, what an odd sort of character and an odd sort of implement. We've had a couple of odd implements. We've got this sword that's for a left-handed person. I suppose it's double-edged, but it's, it's a sword specially made. We've got an ox goad uh, now that's being used. And later on in this book, there'll be a tent peg, torches, a millstone, and a jawbone of a donkey. I mean, it's an odd collection of implements that bring victory, isn't it? Well, God uses unlikely heroes to save his people. That's one of the big things in this book. They use unlikely implements and their oddness in some ways actually draws us to see God's hand at work. It is God who is sovereign here. God is free to raise up whoever he wants. Even if Shamgar is a pagan, God can raise him up to deliver Israel. God can even raise up a left-hander. Wow. God can raise up a flamboyant playboy like Samson. God is sovereign. God chooses the odd. God chooses the weak. It's a pattern throughout the whole Bible and into the New Testament and to today as well. And the oddness of God's heroes points us towards the hand of God at work. They're not likely heroes. If they were likely heroes that is strong, covered in armour, leading a 100,000 men in an army, well, would we begin to say, oh, has God actually brought the victory here? Maybe they have because they're so clever and good. But the oddness of these heroes begins to actually remind us this is God at work. Israel never learned the lesson of history. The sin of idolatry kept being repeated over and over and over again beyond this book, through Samuel, through Kings and into exile and beyond all the time. And the human judges, these human deliverers, they bring relief from the symptom or the consequence of the idolatry. But here is where they fail. They never destroy the idolatry. They never destroy the heart that is drawn to idolatry. They might destroy the enemy who's raised up as a consequence of the idolatry. But it's like putting a band-aid on a sore on your skin. It covers the symptom, but it doesn't deal with the problem underneath. Or sticking plaster, if you don't know the term band-aid. I'm not sure what you use here. I'm Australian. They are dealing with the consequences, but they do not and cannot deal with the cause. They deliver only to a small degree we might say. And the cycles are going round and round and yet again, and yet again, and yet again. He's telling us and making us yearn for a deliverer who can do more than they can. One who can deli deliver from not only the consequences of the idolatry, but can deliver from the sin itself. The rest that each judge brings 40 years from Othniel, 80 years from Ehud. We're not told for Shamgar. 
And not all the judges we're told actually bring any rest. The next couple do. It looks nice, 40 years. It's a pretty short period of time, isn't it? I think, think back 40 years in my life and it doesn't seem long ago. 80 years, I can't do that yet. But in the end, it's not long. That is, the rest that they bring is limited. It's limited because of the sins and idolatry that keeps getting repeated. But the theme of rest is taking us back to, and forwards in fact, to something that is unlimited. It's interesting that in the opening creation account, there is evening and morning, day one, two, three, four, five, six. But the day of rest, there is no evening and morning. There's no limit to the day of rest. It's an unlimited day of rest, at least in intention. Because that rest is lost through the sin of Adam and Eve. And so the Sabbath day rest each week becomes a token of that. So when we see 40 years of rest or 80 years of rest, it's good, but it's not ideal. It's pointing us forwards to an unlimited rest again. To the one who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest and to the eternal heavenly rest that that odd deliverer brings. This book is leading us, drawing us, even cajoling us onto Jesus, the great deliverer from not only the consequence but also from the sin itself. And he saves by an estranged implement as well, not an ox goad or a jawbone or a left-handed sword but by blood and a cross. Let's pray. Lord our God, as we see the sorry plight of your people and yet you raise up judges who are flawed and imperfect, we look forwards to the great deliverer and we thank you for him who saves us not just from consequences of sin but from their cause as well. For Jesus the great deliverer, we give you our sincere thanks and praise. Amen.